0: as alaikum, good morning and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past ten on today, the 30th of October 2022, and you're listening live to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. Uh, on today's programme, as we normally do, we're going to go behind the headlines. We're going to look uh, in-depth at what's happening around the world, and um, as usual, there is no shortage of news. I'm very lucky to be joined uh, today by some regular contributors – uh, Dr. Abdul Alim and Khalil Yusuf uh, and Jazakallah uh, to both of them for, for joining me today. Uh, thank you, uh, Khalil. Um, good to good to have you back in the studio.
1: Assalamualaikum. I'm really surprised you're still having me back on this program. Hamad Sab.
0: No, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. And uh, Dr. Abdul Alim, um, really good of you to join us again this morning thank you dr Ahmad. it's very um, nice to be with you uh, and dr lee you've you've um you've managed to join us despite the fact we we changed the clocks uh, last night here in the uk um perhaps a perhaps a discussion for another day should we keep doing that it seems uh, it seems ridiculous that we keep changing the the time back and forth come winter and summer um an annoyance to lots of people i know um but we're going to talk about some slightly more more serious um events that are occurring around the world and threats um, which have, have really become apparent. I mean, you you can kind of take your pick of of um, of challenges for people and concerns. I mean, when when I talk to my children, there's there's um, it feels like we are in some senses back to my own childhood in terms of uh, energy crises. Um, cost of living increases, rampant inflation, and the threat of nuclear war. And it, and it felt like we put all of that behind us. Um, and all of these things seem to be um, rearing their ugly heads again. The thing that we want to talk about, um, first of all, this morning is the threat of nuclear war. And over the last year, we have seen the conflict um, in Ukraine, and between Russia and Ukraine, uh, ramp up and, uh, uh, and appear to get Significantly worse in terms of the rhetoric, uh, and with with threats of of uh, nuclear war and the use of nuclear weapons becoming apparent, uh, it is claimed that Russia uh, is and Putin is is ready to use nuclear weapons. Although then there are uh, significant um, uh, counterclaims against that as well. Threats of the use of tactical nuclear weapons uh, in order to um, destroy infrastructure. Uh, and also the threat of the use of of dirty uh nuclear weapons um both uh, uh claims that they uh, are going to be used by ukraine uh, and and by russia as well in fact russia took took those claims to the un uh, as well uh, their concerns that um uh that ukraine was ready to use these weapons and and it's it's a it's a major concern um for uh for anyone really who who is um uh, thinking about events around the world and thinking about how how can we avoid uh, nuclear uh, nuclear war nuclear conflagration and as in back in the 80s the 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 concern is that once once it starts once one country uh, uh breaches that that sort of um uh, watershed of using the nuclear weapon, then other countries will follow follow suit, and uh, and and that obviously will lead to an escalation and leads to a situation where um, millions could could potentially die. Uh, and, and Dr. Lee, what's what's your take on the current situation? How how worried should we be?
2: Oh, very worried. I think uh, I'm, I'm. I think uh, there's no question about it. As you pointed out, it's uh, it seems to be moving in a direction which all of us um, don't even dare to think about. And uh, we have had many people warning about this for a while. In fact, uh, I was just looking at some of the literature that comes out of our community, the Ahmadiyya movement, and the head of the Ahmadiyya movement uh, first mentioned this in 2003, immediately after he was elected as the head of the movement, mm. and clearly mentioned this warning of uh, a nuclear war. So the, as early as 2003, we are talking about almost two decades back, um, when the first warning, short, first warning was actually mentioned. But, I, I, you know, you do mention world war, but actually, if you look at it, um, there are multiple crises that are shaping up to be as destructive as perhaps even just the world war, which is a geopolitical event. But you have a huge amount of other risks that are piling up around the same time, which might lead to, as a disastrous consequence, as a world war, in fact, which is, uh, the climate change crisis, right. you know, that uh, last month we talked about how Pakistan is now half, one third of Pakistan is underwater, and that is directly related to climate change. Uh, Rubini, there who is a very well-known economist, uh, presiding in the U.S., has recently come out with a book called 10 Mega Threats to the World Peace. Hmm. And one of them, and many of them actually can be categorized either economic, political, or social. And uh, each of them actually has a potential to completely derail the world as we know it. Uh, and there is, uh, it's, it's amazing how there's a confluence of all these crises coming together at a head around the same time as you're talking about the World War III. Um, so we have a huge amount of uh, worry about uh, the uh, economies of the developed world in terms of uh, you know, crisis, fiscal crisis, uh, monetary crisis, uh, economic crisis, you know, recently what happened in the UK, where the government has had to completely take a 180 degree turn on uh, on the announcements made by the previous administration. Mm. Um, and that is just a small uh, trailer of what is going to happen in the developed and advanced economy. Um, you have a huge amount of, the world is now uh, sitting on a debt pile of about 153 trillion trillion, and that's, there is no way actually that, that debt will be paid and it's going to implode one way or the other. Um, so i think uh, along with that you have uh, the possibility of recurrence of pandemics uh, you know the social uh, crises that are happening in terms of people feeling lonely uh, uh, leadership political leadership that is emerging which is highly populistic and uh, uh, you know polarization in, in the social uh, you know environment in many many countries so it is all coming to a head and i'm afraid that um, uh, World War uh, or nuclear armament is is one manifestation of several of these crises coming together.
0: And I think that's a really important point that you make that this is not not something sitting in in isolation. And uh, Khalil, if I can bring you in at this point, I mean this this discussion around. Why we get to the point where um threats of nuclear war or the use of nuclear weapons becomes apparent is a really important one because, as pointed out by His Holiness the head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community um Mirza this this is about this is about justice this is about the the way in which nations treat each other and treat. Uh, uh, uh and treat people in their uh in, in neighboring countries or, or or in other countries and and about how we perceive ourselves as a human family um and your your, your sort of thoughts and reflections on that
1: well look, you mentioned well so i was going to mention it a little bit later on but i wonder whether i just focus now on sorry one second
0: yeah that's okay um so um I th- I think it's I think it's worth as as just just having a having a more detailed discussion on 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 that <laughs> particular point um uh, but but yeah take take it away Khalid.
1: Yeah so what I was saying was that uh, you mentioned Hazur, so I wonder whether I might just focus on that part first and then I can offer my comments on that. So in in Dallas recently his holiness uh Mirza masur uh, Ahmad had Uh, made some comments about the risk of nuclear war and i just wanted to read a couple of quotes of that because if you don't mind hamad Sab it really sets some good context for our for our discussion and it's particularly on this point of what we can all do together to try and alleviate some of these huge challenges and threats of uh, cruelty and injustice so his holiness said wherever there is cruelty or injustice we must condemn it we must urge our political leaders that instead of propelling our nations towards war and rather than raising the temperature through threats of retribution and violence, they should endeavour to cool the tensions that exist both at an international level and within nations through diplomacy and wisdom. They must ensure that the peace and security of the world remains their paramount objective. He then goes on, uh, uh, Hamasab, to talk about the responsibility of people of faith and this is really interesting because it's not just a focus from the muslim perspective but what he says is that in this effort for peace muslims christians jews hindus and sikhs should play their role as should those who do not believe in god or subscribe to any faith should also play their role rather than isolating ourselves and being fearful of one another we must come together for the sake of humanity. Religious people should ardently pray according to their respective ways, seeking God's help and mercy for the true and lasting peace in the world to emerge. So I've taken a few minutes just to, to read those quotes, but I think that's relevant context and I'd be happy to comment if, if there's time.
0: Thank you, Khalil. And uh, I think a really, really important point, uh, Dr. Aleem, about, about this idea. We, we, we often hear um this idea that uh religion is is part of the problem not part of the solution and the organized religion you know it it it, it is problematic because it teaches people to be insular in their thought and approach and only care about people uh, uh of their own religion and and to uh, only believe that um uh, the 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 people who are who have worth are the people uh, of their own religion uh, and sort of birds of a feather type type situation, but uh, you know th- those words from His Holiness, a, a, a leader within the within the Muslim world and uh, the leader of the <clears throat> the Muslim community around the world, are, are are incredibly powerful in 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 that respect because they uh, sort of get to the heart of the of the thing that you mentioned, which was that uh, this idea that that conflict of all sorts requires the solutions to this require cooperation and cooperation requires us having an understanding of ourselves as being part of a part of a a bigger whole uh, family and not not just individuals.
2: Uh, Yes and uh, unfortunately I think that uh, many uh, uh, scholars are now pointing out that the current systems that we have now in place uh, across the world in terms of uh, global world order that was put in place in in uh, 1945 and you know that the, that, um, the League of Nations failed uh, in uh, doing the kind of preventive work that we now need uh, in terms of when when it when the second world war broke out uh, and and uh, it, the United Nations was formed in 1948 finally at, at the failure of the League of Nations to prevent the second world war uh, to try and do that and that the third world world war does not happen basically Unfortunately, the systems and institutions of global governance that were put in place in 1948, post-UN the uh, formation, and the global financial institutions that were put in place have failed to stem and create a sense of global cohesion and and harmony. Mm. Uh, And uh, I think we are all equally equally to be blamed uh, because the structure of the United Nations and some of the global governance institutions does not lend itself currently to solving some of these problems. And unfortunately, despite the calls by many countries, place or to restructure these and reform these institutions, uh, there have been uh, many uh, advanced economies who have resisted those calls because it goes perhaps against their economic and the interests of the military-industrial complex that His Holiness has mentioned several times in his further addresses beginning in 2013. Um, just to illustrate uh, one of these uh, factors that uh, is leading to uh, the current scenario is uh, the fact that uh, the, the, the the U.S. Uh, spent about $14 trillion in Afghanistan uh, war over the last 20 years. Out of that, about half of that went to the military district complex of private contractors um, in the U.S. And now, uh, for Ukraine, uh, the current aid to Ukraine has now gone to almost 13.7 billion dollars in military aid, which dwarfs the budget that the U.S. gives out in aid to several other countries in the world in terms of uh, in terms of financing their budgets or social development. So obviously, there is a great interest on behalf of the military this complex to have this war uh, ratchet on and to increase the rhetoric. Um, uh, so, in, in words of one political scientist, uh, you know, they, they, there are people who are recognizing the failure of this. And they, and it, to quote verbatim, Caitlin Johnston on, on Twitter, it says, the status quo political establishment has failed as spectacularly as anything could possibly fade. We could have a world of peace, equality, justice, health and harmony, but instead we are marching towards a dystopia, an extinction by nuclear war or environmental collapse. And when you started the conversation today, uh, with the adjustment of the clock, um, it's ironical that I immediately thought of the doomsday clock mm-hmm. that we uh, c- could refer to. And, you know, the, late, the last adjustment of the doomsday clock was done uh, late uh, last year in 2021, which was sort of updated uh, early this year. And uh, it mentions about 200 seconds to, uh, to midnight. Uh, and this has moved from 12 minutes in the last couple of years to 200 seconds now. Into the doomsday, which is the occurrence of a nuclear um, Armageddon. So you can see how uh, urgent this is in terms of uh, uh, in terms of being addressed. And I think that His Holiness has been pointing this out for the last two decades. Um, the fact that um, there is a real urgent need for the world to unite in just one single point of agenda, which is how do all the uh, forces, the political, economic, and social forces come together to stop the nuclear, uh, the nuclear war from happening. Basically, so uh,
0: we we talk a great deal. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. William We talk a great deal about the idea of international aid and supporting international development and the importance of that. And I think it's an important one for us to to touch on. But uh, first, Khalil, um, I think it would be interesting to, uh, for your for your take on on that particular uh, aspect um uh which is to say you know where wh- where the world is at in terms of um th- the agenda of of those who are who wield the most power um it's 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 sort of we we in in everyday conversation you know if you say well you know the the military industrial complex or the you know those who are setting an agenda uh, people say, "Oh, it sounds like conspiracy theory." You know, it sounds—it sounds like you're saying that there are these uh, shadowy figures who are in charge and are directing things. But um, far from being shadowy, they're right out there in the open. It's clear for anyone to see if, if they just you know open a newspaper or open a website and 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 really ha- have a good look at what's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, and, and you know, Dr. Limsup is right in the sense that you know collectivism is important, but just thinking about that, you know, before you get to collectivism and nations getting together and saying, well, okay, let's fix it, you have to start with individualism, and that's personal responsibility. You know, you have uh, just this month, President Biden saying on the one hand, that the world is likely to face Armageddon because of the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And then at the same time, NATO then starts a round of nuclear exercises simulating uh, dropping B61 tactical nuclear weapons and so talking about nuclear at one point or nuclear war was something that people would think actually is never really going to happen but actually this whole taboo about nuclear war is now being diluted Mm. and it is no longer a taboo we're having a discussion about the potential for nuclear and distinguishing between conventional nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons, which don't have the same level uh, of impact and dirty bombs, which uses radioactive material. And this whole idea that uh, anything to do with nuclear brings the world to destruction is now being challenged. And people are saying, well, okay, it's okay for us to develop this B61 bomb, which is an old bomb, actually, which... Mm -hmm. The U.S. has had since the, the late 1960s, but is now being updated and is considerably more powerful uh, than, in fact, some of the bombs that had gone off in, uh, in Hiroshima. So I think that my point is that this really starts with individual responsibility. And as we have seen from history, war begins often with lots of rhetoric and then one miscalculation mm-hmm. And that one miscalculation, the the wrong phrase, the, the wrong act, uh, which might seem innocuous at the time, suddenly leads to conflict. And that's something that the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has recently said. I mean, he said that the world is just one miscalculation away from uh, nuclear Armageddon. And it's a point that His Holiness has been making, you know, for many, many years now. So... I guess the upshot of that is individual responsibility and citizens themselves engaging with their politicians and saying, look, you know, you have to take individual responsibility as an elected government to try and make sure that we dial down some of the rhetoric on conflict and war. And that is what we as an electorate expect.
0: Thank you for that, Khalil. And, and Dr. Lim, before we get into a wider discussion around international development and and those those important aspects, to just to pick up on Khalil's point, this rhetoric of nuclear brinksmanship is is very much part of the issue, isn't it? That, that at the same time as nations such as the United States saying it's, it would be absolutely awful if we were to have nuclear war, and it is the last thing that we want to have nuclear war, at the same time there is there is an entire um, uh, military um, uh, sort of action and rhetoric, which which seems to belie that entirely, and which seems to point towards uh, a direction of travel, which would say, "Oh, it's it's inevitable," and when it happens, then this is what we must do, or when it happens, this is what will happen, um, and and preparing, as it were, the populace in a in a sense for uh, the fact that nuclear war. Um, um, must happen that there's there's very little that we can do to avoid it, and that 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 is uh, that is dangerous in in many senses, and and um, and and that perhaps is part of the part of what people need to push back against the idea that nuclear war is inevitable.
2: Mm, correct, and uh, you know we uh, we we talked about it last time that in many advanced economies uh, the. Uh, there are legal uh, ways to lobby policy um, think tanks who then in turn advise um, the legislative bodies in those countries. And, uh, and in many cases, some of these think tanks actually write up uh, policy papers, um, use the money for, uh, for lobbying for electoral uh, wins, and then use that uh, influence to actually uh, get their uh, policy for uh, continuing on the military-industrial complex efforts to make money. Um, Interestingly, uh, I just read this morning a quote that says that there will be a nuclear war because there are preparations for it. Uh, Mm. And and let me just quote uh, the number of warheads that you currently have uh, across the world. Um, Of course, uh, Russia and United States lead. uh, Russia has about 6,000 warheads. The United States has about 5,500 warheads. out of these, uh, Russia has deployed strategic warheads uh, about 1,500 warheads, and the United States has about 1,600 warheads that are deployed actually. And these are strategic warheads that uh, Khalid mentioned as the B-61, uh, which can be carried over a missile or uh, deployed through uh, an, an airplane. Um, uh, you know, and and he did mention the modifications to it because these are old warheads. But uh, the current warheads actually have a uh, a huge multiplication effect in terms of kilotons uh, from the warhead that was used in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the Hiroshima was about 15 kilotons, and Nagasaki was about 22 kilotons. But each of these deployed strategic warheads that can be carried, and these are called gravity bombs, because they are literally deployed based on the fact that you just drop it and the gravity will guide the bomb actually. Uh, Some of them have some modifications in terms of being propelled in the right direction because they have some rockets built into them. But essentially, the plane just has to be on top of a city and then let the bomb drop the gravity. And these, these are called gravity bombs, this B61 variant. And the smallest of the B61 variant actually has a power of 45 kilotons. Uh, which is about three times the one that was dropped on Hiroshima. So when we talk about tactical nuclear weapons mm. uh, in in sort of a relaxed breath saying, oh, this is not going to be in the nuclear armageddon, um, we are talking actually about a fairly uh, big-sized, extremely lethal and destructive bomb that is three times the power of, uh, of uh, a Hiroshima uh, bomb. And this can very easily annihilate millions of people if it was dropped on the center of the city, which is the scenario that we're talking about, uh, and and have a diameter of about one or two kilometers of, uh, you know, uh, radiation that will immediately any living being uh, in in that radius. So uh, when we talk about tactical nuclear weapons, it's not really uh, even open for discussion. And the fact that we are having this discussion is really, really scary. You yeah. <laughs> know, um, the, the, the mainstream media has started talking about it. You have pundits who are talking about, you know, what would happen and why people should actually think about a tactical nuclear weapon because that's going to stop the war like it did, and when Japan was bombed in the in the in the in the World War. Uh, and so there is this uh, foolish optimism that once uh, you can actually uh, you can actually use a, use a tactical nuclear weapon to uh, stop the war. Uh, and that's the uh, theory that is being applied or logic being you know uh, deployed here, which is extremely scary. And the fact that uh, you have uh, some of the advanced economy media actually involved in this debate, uh, mm. certainly for the policymakers in the U.S., uh, is it's absolutely, absolutely horrifying and scary.
0: Part of the the challenge, I guess, is that the only narrative that we have around the use of nuclear weapons is that uh, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where uh, the United States dropped nuclear weapons, dropped nuclear bombs on densely populated cities on an already crippled Japan coming to the end of its... Uh, resources and, and ability to to continue to fight at the end of World War Two, and the narrative that is that is given by the um, Americans is that that is the thing that that ended the Second World War, whereas it's pretty clear from any reading of of history that that Japanese surrender was about to happen, and and all that happened was that it accelerated it by a, by a little while, but in the process, what they did was. The unthinkable, and and actually something that was utter, utterly um, horrific. They dropped bombs on densely populated urban areas, uh, killing hundreds and thousands of people, vaporizing them, and and they they did something that was unthinkable up until that point. But they in in doing it, they they created a, um, a narrative which meant that. If they had to do that again, they could say, well, it would be justified just as it was justified at the end of World War two. And I guess that, that that is one of the scariest aspects of this, that if you once you broach that and want, once you get into people's heads, the idea that it is something that could happen, uh, then then suddenly you create this narrative where. Uh, if it does happen, it's it's really not all that bad. Whereas we know that the reality is that it means the annihilation of many hundreds of thousands, or, or now probably millions of people.
2: Yes, and uh, you know the the nuclear posture that um, the 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 U.S. has uh, says essentially that um, uh, the intercontinental ballistic missiles that are sort of deployed currently um, say that actually uh, the, there is a limited decision time. To, uh, to respond to an incoming missile uh, mm. from another uh, continent, and uh, and then the race is about who is going to do the preemptive strike rather than uh, wait for another one to annihilate your own forces, um, and this is why I believe um, the 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 scenario is about two things. One is either you have a nuclear war by choice or is it by mistake? As as Khalil pointed out, um, the the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis was just uh, here's short of actually a nuclear Armageddon, uh, yeah. uh, and just prevented because one sane officer in the, Russia, in the Russian nuclear submarine refused to uh, move ahead with uh, launching the, the nuclear uh, missile. Yeah, and so, uh, and so there have been a couple of events across the world. In fact, as recent as late 1990s, which are not published in mainstream media, where uh, the nuclear powers actually came almost head to head. In terms of false alarms going off, and the fact that uh, information was conveyed that uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles have been launched, and there is there is a need uh, a five minute window to respond. Now imagine having a five minute window to respond to either your nuclear mm-hmm. annihilation or doing something about it. Uh, and the people at the helm, the the current political leadership across the world, uh, who are populist and are uh, are uh, you know uh, looking at uh, wanting to keep that dynamic going on in terms of wanting to have votes and increased rhetoric of uh, militarism and, and, and uh, you know polarization in political opinion you have a you have a huge mix and recipe for making even a strategic mistake in terms of a decision being taken by one of the powers to to because they have miscalculated or something actually is uh, been conveyed in disinformation Which is actually not true, and here is another big problem I think, which is what we are struggling with, is the amount of disinformation that we have around the world currently on mainstream media is staggering. It is difficult to cut through that disinformation, and even for us, for people like us who are sort of up and about and reading a lot of uh, you know posts and media and articles, we have difficulty in cutting through that. Imagine. A busy leader or common people who have no time to do that, and just giving it to the fact that uh, something disastrous about to happen, and we need to react
0: the and as you said, that narrative that is created become becomes incredibly important because if a if a politician can say, Well, I'm doing this to protect the people of my country, then it 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 justifies it you know especially if it's somewhere on the other side of the world, and as you as you said, you know it takes. It takes those individuals who take um, personal responsibility, something that Khalil said, uh, to, to take a step back. And you mentioned the, the submarine commander in, in the height of the, the Cold War during the um, Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, his name, and no one would have heard of this, his name was Vasily Akipov, And he was a Russian military flotilla commander stuck in a submarine with fellow officers um, thinking that war had broken out. Um, because tensions were high, having bombs dropped on them by American ships, and they had to make a decision. Should they launch their nuclear weapons? Now, no one knew, the Americans didn't know that they had nuclear weapons, but they had to make a decision. Should they launch their nuclear weapons Um, because they believed that war had started and because they believed that that was the necessary response? Or should they not? Should they wait it out? And and. Uh, they considered their their own lives to be under threat as well, and 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 perhaps that was the only response that they could they could have also, um, and and it took one one lone voice, one sane person in the midst of all of that to say, actually, no, we shouldn't do that because that will lead to World War Three, that will lead to nuclear Armageddon, and that is something that is unacceptable, um, and and we see, as you say, a, a few examples of this. Um, one, one, um, and clearly, I'll bring you in at this point. One really fascinating uh, thought experiment, which has been put forward, is that uh, for those military leaders that have access to nuclear weapons, um, we 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 talk in in colloquial terms about the nuclear codes this idea that there are some nuclear codes in a in a briefcase somewhere which go around with for instance the president of the united states uh, and that in order to launch a nuclear attack those codes need to be accessed and then punched into a machine somewhere and 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 then a button pressed um for for a nuclear launch to happen um and one thought experiment that is put forward is that those codes should be Um, uh, somehow surgically embedded under the skin of an individual human being that walks around with the president everywhere. And the only way the president can get access to those codes is to kill that individual. And it's it's a slightly horrific thought experiment, but it underlines the idea that if the president were to go so far as to access those nuclear codes, then what they're essentially doing is killing many millions of people and the first step in that has to be that they should be ready to kill. That means that they should be ready to kill an individual who is sitting there in front of them. And it sort of underlines the horror of what it would actually mean to launch a nuclear attack. Um, and Khalil, this is, this is perhaps it goes some way to, to help us to, to get into scale the idea of what what nuclear war would mean. I and mean, we talk about conventional war and the horrors of conventional war and the idea that, you know, uh, politicians send soldiers off to, to both to die and to kill. Uh, and that in itself is horrific. Um, but but uh, nuclear weapons, they would l- raise that to an entirely different level altogether.
1: Yeah, gosh, it's, I mean, it's an interesting concept and I haven't heard it before, you know, but I guess what it means is that you have to make a determination about who deserves to die and who doesn't, uh, who is engaged in combat and who is an innocent victim. And and I guess a policy like that would require one to really think very carefully about the impact of a decision that they made. Um, But but I think that the, the point that you've been discussing previously is about this concept of mutually assured destruction as being the Principle that prevents us from engaging in nuclear war. And unfortunately, I think that concept of mutually assured destruction has been diluted to such a degree that it is no longer a principle upon which we can rely. I mean, it's only nine states, actually, officially, that have uh, nuclear weapons, and they hold the entire risk. Of annihilation, and I think it's important that we think very carefully about this principle now of common security. And so, whilst I don't want to bring up the topic of Brexit, although it has been coming up in the in the newspapers recently, I can see you smiling, saab uh, But uh, actually, the importance of having a common security framework is just as important as having a common peace framework. You know, mm. So whilst the United Nations uh, themselves work on, hopefully, are supposed to be working on trying to maintain peace and security, actually having a common security framework, including, for example, within Europe, is a really important part of actual demilitarization. Because what it means is that everybody's security is interdependent upon the other, And uh, the idea that you would individually massively increase militarization. I mean, this B-12 bomb that uh, was being discussed earlier is the biggest, most expensive nuclear project in history. It's hugely expensive. And the idea uh, that that is going to lead us to some kind of security because one power has all of this access to nuclear weaponry, I don't think is, is correct. So... Uh, I think this common security framework is something that uh, nations should explore, and uh, do so on the basis that having common security will, I hope, also lead to
0: common peace. Thank you for that. Clearly, a really, really important idea. And I guess, I guess the the other side of that, and the side that needs to be balanced very carefully, is that in in this entire conversation when we when we look at the um the american response to what has happened in in ukraine and Dr. Levin, if I can bring you in at this point there's a there's a narrative which has become um, um the 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 main narrative when we when we look in the western media this idea that russia is the aggressor here russia uh invaded ukraine and uh, the response from the West had had to be there because uh, this was a step too far. They invaded a sovereign nation and um, if they could do it to one sovereign nation, they could do it to another sovereign nation. I think it's really important that we take a pause as we think through that and whilst recognizing that what Russia did was clearly invasion of a f- sovereign state, that the context and the history to all of this becomes very very important and very apparent and ukraine went in the last decade from being a nation that was russian facing to european facing it was a it was a buffer state between uh, europe nato and russia um, and suddenly became part of part of the um the eu bloc uh, in the wider sense, a European bloc in a wider sense, and with the potential to join NATO, and for that reason, Russia saw it as a direct threat. Uh, leaving, leaving aside the the other general issues around the civil war, ongoing civil war in Ukraine, which was which was ethnic strife between um, ethnic Ukrainians and ethnic Russians that that Russia saw as its duty to protect. Leaving that aside uh, for a moment from a strategic perspective, this was clearly a significant challenge for Russia. And and one can imagine, rightly or wrongly, that given the same situation, the United States would have responded in a similar way. And it's not as if the United States has got any sort of track record where they do not invade sovereign nations. They do invade sovereign nations. They have invaded sovereign nations on many times. During the last 50 or 60 years since the Second World War. And so that that excuse, that idea that, oh, um, th- that is something that is absolutely horrific and unacceptable um, for Russia to do, as, as much as we might say it is unacceptable, it, it feels like America saying that and America's response to that is deeply hypocritical.
2: Yes, and and uh, let me just uh, go back to what uh, Felix said. I think that um, the latest policy document that came out of the U.S. is called the Biden administration's nuclear posture review, hmm. uh, and it was released on Thursday, I think, about on 27th of October. So this is the this is just fresh off the press, and um, as you mentioned, uh, the this posture actually a policy document essentially relates what is the current state of control uh, and command of the uh, nuclear arms. Uh, But the overall message, and I'm just uh, really uh, summarizing this in the last paragraph, it says that uh, the message to the nuclear arms control and disarmament experts of field is that just trust us. Uh, It is not clear whether the rest of us have a choice either way. But after, yeah. varying, after years of low public awareness of nuclear weapons issues, the rude awakening we are seeing now is based in the realization that status quo, where one person, the U.S. president, can choose at any moment to launch a nuclear attack, killing many millions and ending human civilization as we know it, is fundamentally unacceptable. That responsibility is far too great for any one person. There are credible paths forward to reducing nuclear risk, setting the course towards disarmament, and addressing the profoundly unjust order nuclear weapons have held in this place. Let the nuclear posture review be an opportunity to push uh, for a better nuclear status quo. So despite all the discussions that we have had and, you know, this alternative view that um, the the understanding between Gorbachev when uh, there was a decision for the collapse of the Soviet uh, um, uh, Soviet Republic was that in—after in, in, in after the event, uh, the in Europeans and the North Americans had promised that they will not uh, expand the NATO and not threaten Russia with its security by expanding uh, NATO. Uh, and despite that understanding, um, they, the, uh, they went ahead and still uh, kept expanding it. And I think uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who is a professor from the U.S., has pointed out that um, there was a uh, lot of discussion about uh, Putin drawing a red line about Ukraine, which is quite a strategic in terms of its location to Russia and its security, uh, saying that uh, they, that he would take action if the West went ahead and and uh, started discussions on uh, Ukraine joining NATO, mm. and that is exactly what happened. And this is why I'm saying that um, one of the scariest things about the scenario is that. One wants to believe that the nation states, which are governed by political leadership and legislative assemblies and people elected by democ- uh, by votes, and functioning democracies, will have certain amount of control over policy making, uh, and that these policies can be altered uh, with uh, with a diverse views with diverse views of experts from different parts of the world, so that it is well informed. But the fact is that. More and more policy making is happening in uh, think tanks, in uh, uh, in places where uh, legislative, mem- le- legislative members are elected based on certain political interests or the interests of the military-industrial complex, and there is a there is a rabbit hole through which uh, uh, you know it, it, it goes under the under in a rabbit hole where policy making just becomes. Um,
0: I think we've. Uh, lost Dr. Aleem There, we'll try and get him back, um, Khalil. I think just to just to pick up the point that Dr. Aleem was was making, that we see our political leaders making choices, and those choices are are sort of given given the veneer of uh, these are choices being made for for our nations in order to um, in order to keep them safe, uh, in order to to. Ensure the long-term strategic aims of of um, of safety and security, etc. Uh, but but in actual fact, what they lead towards inevitably is conflict. Um, and we've seen since the Second World War, as, as uh, Dr. Alim said right at the very beginning, a certain world order was set up, and subsequent to that has been the cold war and conflicts arising arising from that and the proxy wars between the united states and russia which have occurred with disturbing regularity over the over the previous 50 or 60 years and there there comes a point at which um it it is a genuine a genuine concern for the future of humanity and and how do we how do we change that narrative how do we push back against it as individuals
1: Look, we talk often about peace and we talk about that as if there is some utopian solution where everybody gets on with each other and there's no dispute and there's no conflict and everybody is happy. The truth is that mankind has always had conflict and there are always going to be circumstances in which nations disagree. The question is, What do we do when that happens? We can't prevent that from happening, but how do we address that? And one of the main reasons why conflict happens is because one party looks at the other and says, you have an unfair advantage over me and I don't like it. I appreciate that I'm vastly oversimplifying global geopolitics, but actually Mm. it's about what I've got and what you've got Mm. and having some kind of discrepancy between what one party thinks they should be entitled to. And that comes back down to this word that uh, uh, His Holiness has always spoken about, which is justice and which is truth. And what that means is that sometimes you might want something that you feel other people have but actually you're prepared to forego what you feel that you are entitled to to speak against yourself if you are being untruthful and act in a way which is entirely just just to your people and also just to those people who might not have elected you Now, I just want to touch on that point, right, because somebody might say, well, why should we have any responsibility for somebody who has not elected us? Well, in any democracy, actually, you are responsible as a trustee for everybody within your nation. And within your own nation, there is a large proportion of people who might not have voted for that government, who have a completely different view. But that doesn't mean that the government isn't responsible for them. And when you... Uh, Are leader of a government in a in a in a world a global village then you also have a responsibility to others even though you are not elected by them that is part of the responsibility of being on a global stage and so uh, that uh, essence of justice really has to be an important part of governance not just domestically but internationally Thank you for that
0: <clears throat> Khalil. I think a really really important point that I'd like to touch on uh, in a little bit more detail dr Alim, I think we've got you back um apologies we 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 lost you there for a few minutes and you you were talking about the uh, the sort of the world order and and the direction of travel of of, of different nations in terms of the agendas they're they're setting i I don't know if you wanted to complete that thought or or reflect on on what Khalil said, which I think was a really important point.
2: Yes, I think uh, I was mentioning the fact that uh, we have a very distorted policy process, and Felipe is absolutely right about the fact that there is a responsibility that world leaders actually hold, and and we and we have also mentioned that his holiness has written letters directly to the world leaders both in mm. 2003 and then again in 2015. So there has not been lack of effort on uh, on and, and and clearly he has been saying things in very clear terms in terms of absolute justice uh, but the fact is today that if you see um, you have millions of people turning up in in france in hungary in the in, even in the uk uh, who are protesting against the injustice not just about nuclear issues but also about poverty uh, you know the collapse collapse of social services uh, uh rising interest rates and the upcoming collapse of perhaps the housing market so there is a huge amount of worry that we have in terms of what is really happening in terms of political decision-making. And the question is, how do we really channel that uh, energy and that uh, public voice back to the decision-makers and policymakers and the politicians? Uh, clearly, the current uh, processes of uh, electing leaders are not working uh, because we have seen nations going to war despite protests, uh, uh, both in case of Iraq and, and, uh, and uh, Syria. Uh, so uh, obviously we have a problem with with a broken loop of of uh, uh, democracies becoming weak and decisions being made increasingly in favor of uh, special interest groups and, and the victim decision complex so the crucial question here is and, and uh, you know i really don't have a clear answer to that but the question is how do we really channel the uh, the resentment the worry the concern of a very large number of people the the real the big middle majority, uh, to to challenge into policy-making circles. And, uh, of course, we have one voice here, in the Voice of Islam, uh, and I, I believe we don't have that much of an outreach, but certainly there is room for alternative voices to be heard and for people to rise up and get together hmm. in terms of just one item agenda, which is to say, how do you really prevent the upcoming uh, global war or the current uh, financial and uh, crisis, which is going to lead to possibly or uh, multiply the effects of the war. Uh, and uh, other than using the current, um, uh, you know, instruments of media and uh, propagating as much as possible and um, talking to people in individual capacity uh, of the rise of this issue, there's really very little that we, could, we can do in terms of uh, preventing this. Uh, so I'm I'm afraid uh, I have more of an inclination towards thinking that this might end up in a dystopia rather than us being able to prevent it. But then the question would be, if it happens, what are the other scenarios? And what is going to actually happen beyond it? And is that going to perhaps allow humanity to learn from it? And where does where do we really go from there? And obviously there is a need to prepare for that kind of worst case scenario also, you prepare for the worst and you hope for the best, and I think that's what we need to do now that this ball, or sort of a, what you call what I call a bulldozer, is basically approaching us, and there is really nothing that we are doing uh, that seems to be able to stop it.
0: Thank you for that, uh, Doctor Liman. And I guess it's it's important to impress on people this this idea that whilst nuclear war may not be inevitable, it could happen, and I guess. This idea, because we've been playing brinkmanship, and, and Khalil, if I can bring you in at this point, just in the last few minutes before the news at 11, um, this because this idea of brinks, brinksmanship, nuclear brinksmanship, has been ongoing for the last many, many decades, people sort of perhaps have this fanciful belief that oh, we'll just carry on doing the same thing, won't we? There'll be threats on either side, and then eventually people will back down because, you know, mutually accla- uh, uh, assured destruction, etc. Um, but but it won't actually happen. No one is stupid enough to do it. Um, it. As you said earlier, it takes one individual to act in a foolish manner or to make one mistake, and that's it. And the the button is pressed, and the and the the thing happens. And once the thing happens, you can't undo it. Um, and and uh, you know the the mess that is created by a nuclear bomb is something that has long-lasting generational effects on on humanity.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, I think in uh, Nagasaki, uh, three hundred and forty thousand people died. You know, when the US dropped these. Uh, atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki and you're quite right to say that that had a long-term effect because at that time there was a complete breakdown of rescue and medical service everything was destroyed and actually uh, it had a consequence over many many generations and as we have discussed actually in some detail you know bombs these days are now 20 times greater strength than those Destroy which destroyed Hiroshima in nineteen forty-five. I, I mean, I think I would just probably go back to the the point that Hazura had made, and which I made, uh, which I said, you know, really at the outset of this discussion, which is that it's important for people of all faiths and uh, people of no faith to uh, unite together and to try and make sure that we put appropriate pressure in. Uh, a lawful and democratic way on our governments to make sure that we try and uh, encourage our governments to move away from the path of destruction and that we engage in prayer. Uh, I I appreciate that the secular world doesn't quite register that or recognize that but we are a voice of Islam, we are a Uh, a focus of of religion and we do have a belief uh, in faith and God and prayer is a really important part of that and so uh, having this uh, uh, deep and heartfelt ardent prayer so that we can uh, seek God's help and mercy for a true and lasting peace in the world I think is essential.
0: Thank you very much. For that, Khalil, and I guess, Doctor. Alim, it's really important. In the last couple of minutes, um, this this idea of prayer as being important, people are going to say, "Well, yeah, you can't change the world with prayer." Um, if if at the very least we change ourselves with prayer, that would be a profound thing.
2: Indeed, um, and and I also want to just um, build on what uh, Khalil said. Uh, you know, the, the in the words of um, the special uh, the movement who spoke on twenty fourth February. 2022 in a press release, he says that uh, I pray that the world leaders strive earnestly to safeguard and protect mankind both today and in the future from the torment of warfare, bloodshed, and destruction. And so from the depth of my heart, I pray that leaders of the major powers of their governments do not take steps that will serve to destroy the future of our children and next generation. Rather, that every effort and motivation should be to ensure that we bequeath to those who follow us a world of peace and prosperity. And so what can one say except that uh, uh, we should all pray that uh, God accepts, Allah accepts his prayers and that all of us in whatever we pray uh, should pray that uh, that uh, this uh, uh, nuclear scenario doesn't really roll out as we expect it to. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Aleem. We're coming up to the end of the first hour of the program and, and I just want to thank Dr. Uh, Abdul Aleem for joining us uh, again, and, and a very serious, very heavy discussion today, but I think a really, really important one, and one that uh, I'm sure we will have need to revisit in in the future as well. Um, and uh, uh, and one, I think, in, in conclusion, that everyone needs to really be aware of of the gravity of the situation that the world finds itself in, and the risk of nuclear war is is unfortunately ever present, and and. Uh, heavier than it has been for for quite some time, and that it is the responsibility of every single individual to speak out against this in whatever form or format or media or or um, a forum that they have available to them. And uh, nuclear war is not inevitable if each of us as individuals are able to stand up and speak out against it. So uh, Dr. Lim, thank you very much for your um, uh, wise words and your participation pers- participation in, in the program this morning. Thank you. Um, and uh, just as we come up to uh, 11 o'clock and we come up to the hour, um, I just want to again thank Dr. Abdul-Lim and and thank uh, Khalil Yusuf and we'll be uh, back live again after the news. And if you uh, are listening to um, uh, Weekend World on on digital radio, uh, then thank you for for listening. You can listen again to any of our Previous episodes of Weekend World. If you if you go to the uh, Voice of Islam website, um, or if you follow us on on uh, Twitter, uh, then you will uh, be able to get uh, some more information. And if you go onto SoundCloud, then there's the entire back catalogue of uh, Weekend World there on SoundCloud available for you to to listen to. You can listen to all of our. Previous episodes of Weekend World and Weekend World has been going pretty much since the beginning of, of Voice of Islam Radio back in uh, back in 2015. So um, an opportunity there for you to 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 listen to that and our discussion of, of this and various other topics over the last few years. So um, uh, do listen again. Do participate if you want to be part of the debate. Then go, then go onto Twitter and find find Voice of Islam and uh, and participate in the discussion around this. Um, and uh thank you for thank you for listening and join us again after the news As alaykum. welcome back to Weekend world on the voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past eleven on today the thirtieth of october two thousand and twenty two and you join us for the second hour of our program and thank you uh to our loyal listeners for staying tuned here to um weekend world on the voice of islam and um we had dr Abdul Alim uh, on with us in the first hour of the program we were talking about. Nuclear War and How to... A, a Beginner's Guide to Avoiding Nuclear War. That's how we captioned the first hour of the program. Not to make light of it, it is a very serious uh, subject. And and Khalil Yusuf was there in the first hour and continues to join me in the second hour of the program. Um, Khalil, we... Dr. Ali mentioned in the first hour of the program many trillions of dollars that America had spent on the war in Afghanistan. And by any measure, by any measure, that war in terms of the aims and objectives of um the united states as a nation and by the aims and objectives of the international community in terms of ensuring that afghanistan was brought onto a sound uh, economic and political footing that was an utter and abject failure and all of those trillions and trillions of dollars spent and um and that money is spent on war what is the problem with us spending money on really ensuring the development of, in inverted commas, underdeveloped nations, poorer nations, in order to bring them onto the right economic and political footing? Why do we bulk at the idea of spending that money on international aid when um, the same, uh, many, many times more money is spent on war? I think the answer to that is actually in your question
3: because
1: um you described it as being an abject failure and the question is who was the intended beneficiary Mm. yeah you know and i guess if you are saying have the people of afghanistan benefited as a result of all of that investment um you have to define what benefit is Mm. but if you were to just take a, a light touch helicopter view you probably would say no but if you were to say, has the business of war benefited, then actually it has not been an abject failure mm. if you look at war as a business. yeah. So um, uh, I'm not quite sure where that leads us in terms of the conversation. But I think that our perspective, broadly speaking, you know, the, the underlying narrative of what we would say on this program is that. Economics uh, and business is important uh, in order ultimately to benefit society. It is not really just to benefit the few at the expense of society. And mm. the, that's the underlying theme that you will find in pretty much everything that we say, which is that, well, you should treat people with fairness and everybody has the right to all of those things that you might find in the United Universal Declaration of Human Rights which actually have been enshrined in Islam since the time of the holy prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and and so when we speak about this then what we are saying is well what is the purpose of of war if it is not to secure Peace, and if it is not to secure justice, if it is not to restrain injustice, mm. and you know, mm. bring about in a proportional way, and and bring about uh, the rights of individuals of people in order to live a, a a you know a peaceful, comfortable life.
0: Thank you for that, Khalil. And I guess that you're touching on, upon the idea of a just war and, and you know, justifications for war, where where that is where it becomes necessary but proportionate and this idea of of, of proportionate war and, and you know we, we we looked on in horror at the justifications for um the war in afghanistan on the on the back of of the, the horror that was 9-11 and then the war in in iraq which appeared to have little or very frail uh justification and 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 the subsequent Um, uh, ongoing conflicts in 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 the Middle East on on the back of that and I and I guess you know people are going to say well you know it it becomes it becomes necessary these things become necessary uh, when we have to fight against injustice and I guess there's a broader question around what does the evidence tell us about how we can really tackle economic injustice how we can really tackle injustice in the world and ensure that Um, individuals everywhere have the same rights and freedoms and ability to enjoy their life and have a family um, and and fulfill all of those things that you mentioned in terms of a, a, a declaration of human rights, the things that might be encapsulated within a declaration of human rights. And and I guess, you know, to turn the turn the question on its head a little bit and the discussion that we were having during during the break, Khalil, I mean, I'm, th- I'm thinking of individuals that might be listening to this program and thinking, why are you talking about international aid? Why are you talking about helping people around the world when we have people in this country who are unable to feed themselves, who are unable to heat their homes, who are unable to look after their families? Why should the money that their government takes from them in taxes be spent supporting individuals in other parts of the world? Um, and it's a very reasonable question, um, and and I, and I think it's probably one that needs to be uh, picked through very, very carefully, um, and and with and with adequate amounts of of sort of detail and nuance, because it's not a straightforward question. Why should we not do the good that is in front of us as the as the old adage says, Why should we not help the people immediately to our right and to our left our neighbors? Why should we instead look to to focus our attention on people on the other side of the world um who who don't have enough to eat or drink or don't have the opportunity for good ed- education or don't have access to good health care um why? Why should we do it in 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 that way, Khalid, What What would your response be, or what would your answer be, um, to to those individuals who would say that?
1: Let's well, okay. Let's look at the the current news narrative. I mean, uh, you know, Priti Patel and Sweller Breverman in the Home Office, key part of the two thousand and nineteen uh, manifesto for the Conservative Party was to try and deal with. Uh, illegal migration mm. um, That actually isn't a correct legal term But I think it's a term that people un- understand yeah. And um, so for the purpose of the discussion I will mm. I will use that And uh, the idea was to reduce the numbers of people That were coming to this country Broadly speaking yeah. Now lots of people come to this country Because they do not feel safe in their countries of origin, uh, I appreciate that that is not something that has given a lot of focus mm. in the media, but they feel that the places in which they live are filled with injustices, they have despotic uh governments they have uh, an inability to meet their basic needs no food, no housing, no education, no security and uh, or they're persecuted because of their religious beliefs or because of their political beliefs and as a result of that they flee their country because they're no longer safe and they can't try and come somewhere else now if we just look at that one individual problem there are two ways of dealing with it one of them is that we try and put a barrier up in the sea and say right it's not my problem and we're going to stop all of these people from getting to our borders they can they can drown in the sea, or they can go to France, or they can go to Germany, or somewhere else. But they're not going to come here. Mm. That policy hasn't worked because, mm. from time immemorial, we have not been able to stop people from coming to this country. And the reason why we haven't been able to stop people from coming to this country is because uh, they they are suffering a genuine fear for their personal safety, mm. and any risk is worthwhile yeah. to escape that. Yeah. So. If putting up a wall in the middle of the sea, metaphorically, um, does not work, then, well, what's the next option? Mm. And the next option is, well, why don't we address the reasons why people are leaving those countries? And so spending taxpayers' money on trying to help those countries with systems, with infrastructure, uh, with political stability, with education helps us because it means that their countries are much more habitable, they are much safer, and there is no underlying need for such large numbers of people to leave their countries and come elsewhere. And as a result of that, I mean, that's one example. There are lots of other examples. Mm. You know, There's soft diplomacy and there's all sorts of other reasons why. You know, we might want to invest in other countries, But but that is one of the reasons why we might say that it is important to spend on foreign aid and uh, we have decided that as a parliament as a uh, and we've passed legislation uh, which says since 2015 that we will spend 0.7% of our gross national income on foreign aid uh not too long ago uh i think it was 2020 uh, and actually Rishi Sunak uh was uh, presiding over this that uh, they try to reduce that to 0.5% and they have, uh, that's about 11, 11 billion or something like that. And they have now begun to use some of that money domestically. So with Ukrainians coming into this country, the money is being used in order to uh, pay for the cost of ukrainian refugees in this country which the international community has agreed you can do mm. but britain is one of the only countries within the international community who have actually exercised yeah. that right so what it means is that the actual expenditure overseas is now only about 0.3 percent 0.3
0: percent of gross national income uh, and, as you said, you know zero point seven percent was the was the promise zero point seven percent is what what was being spent a few years ago, and that was being spent on real projects around the world to support uh, people And the main in the main and if people ask the question oh international development money what does it get spent on? what use is it what value is it is it does it actually make any difference that actually have an impact around the world, and I guess it's it's a fair question it's one worth asking and it's one worth considering and and the fact of the matter is that we that we know and the research is is uh, is there, and various international Uh, developmental organisations such as the United Nations and the World Health Organisation they look at these things, they look at the international aid and they look at the way in which it's spent and and the impact that it has and clearly it's variable and not all aid is equal in terms of the value that it gives to individual nations Um, and that very much depends on the way in which that funding is implemented Um, but the things that we know make a difference are early education of children, supporting the education of children, especially of young girls um, a focus on good healthcare systems, and if healthcare is provided for individuals, then they can be economically productive and they can support their families, and that's very very obvious. Um, economic development um, and the support of individuals to be able to to um, work. Um, to have training that is necessary for them to for them to be able to work uh, and of course the support of individuals to be able to feed their families and so that the sort of economic aid that goes towards um supporting individuals and and um, uh, communities to be able to feed themselves is is critically critically important because um, children as they're growing up and children form the backbone of a of a nation's future if you invest in the, in the in those individuals then you invest in the future of that nation and so good education good health and good nutrition for for those individuals are the things that have an impact and make a difference to those to those countries and those nations and improve the outcome for for those um individuals nations uh, in in the longer term and i think the longer term is the critical thing this isn't something that gets fixed in a year or two years or three years it is something that, that um gets fixed over decades now goodwill and good progress can be destroyed within a few years, as we saw on the back of COVID with the reduction in funding and with challenges to international health infrastructure, COVID really challenged that and, and and caused things to go backwards. And and one of the things that we've seen is, and this has been pointed out by the World Health Organization, is a resurgence in tuberculosis. Now tuberculosis was a disease that was on the wane. It was a disease that was really um, in retreat around the world, and we could see that t b is one of those very nasty diseases that causes long term problems it kills individuals it causes long term health issues it stops people from being able to work. It is a very nasty, nasty, and insidious disease, and with good vaccination programs with hygiene with good treatment programs, t b was in retreat around the world and here in the u k for instance um Uh, For many of us as individuals, we would have been vaccinated against TB either as as very young children or in our teens. Certainly I remember in school getting a TB vaccination. It is now no longer the case that universal TB vaccination is offered to all children here in the UK. And the reason for that is that TB is no longer seen as a problem here in the UK. That could change. And as the as the picture in the international community changes in terms of rates of TB, that could change here in the UK as well. We could see a resurgence of TB. And the simple reality is that the things that affect individuals around the world has the potential to affect us as communities as well. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Khalil, this idea of a wall, a wall in the sea. We, we cannot um, divest ourselves either f- from the problems that the international community faces or... Or, or from the challenges that they that they face, and we are we are part of, of a, a single community, and the challenges that they face. If we don't help to deal with them, they will come to bite us in the future. And we saw that with COVID, which in many respects was a sort of a hallmark of a disease which have, which came about because of challenges in one country, and then has affected the whole of the rest of the world. We see it with, now with bird flu. Which has become rampant here in the UK and is affecting our wild bird populations and causing ecological devastation, and we see it with TB, and we, we would potentially see it with other other diseases as well. And so, as you very rightly said, Khalil, this, these are the challenges to the international community, which are going to be challenges for us as well. Um, and and we should not forget that we, as a, as an industrialized nation, as a developed nation benefit hugely from the mineral resources, from the uh, physical resources of other countries, whether that is the uh, manufacturing of, of goods in cheap labor markets or from being able to get the minerals which are necessary to build our smartphones on our laptops and various other uh, devices that we rely on in our day-to-day lives to make lives easier for us. It's very easy to forget where all of those resources come from and the fact that the individuals in those countries do not sadly benefit um, to the extent that they should from resources which are being taken out of the ground in the countries in which they live.
1: Yeah, I mean, qu- quite right. Look, um, I guess the question is about you know what type of nation do we want to be do we want to be a parochial nation or a progressive parochial that's a hard word what, what that means is you know insular and just looking at oneself and looking at our own interests uh, rather than a progressive nation looking at others and the approach that we take is from an islamic perspective is that the progress and development of society really is about collectivism individual rights mm. in Islam. Are of course very important mm-hmm. but the impact of the exercise of individual rights on the collective is just as important you yeah. know it's about individual responsibility and collective responsibility mm-hmm. about making sure that the society that you live in your neighbors uh, your environment everything that you rely on and everything that you use is respected and looked after I mean that is the Islamic principle mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. is is what I guess what underlines the comments that I would make. So when we talk about TB, which was what we were discussing earlier on, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, my understanding is that we're supposed to be spending globally around 13 billion on uh, trying to address TB, which is actually the second biggest killer after COVID. I, I understand. I didn't know that before this mm-hmm. morning, but when I, I looked into it, I realized that it's actually quite a uh, an insidious and uh, very deadly disease. But that 13 billion has been reduced to around 5.4 billion mm. in 2021, which is a huge, huge reduction. Now look, COVID affected the world, and actually, mm. one of the, if there was one small uh, light that came out of that, it was seeing how nations were able to come together and to be able to put in place programs that tried to address the impact of COVID. And actually that is really important learning Because that learning can be used In order to deal with this scourge Of tuberculosis as well Trying to deal with uh, vaccinations Trying to make sure that people are diagnosed So you don't have large numbers of, of people Who are uh, undiagnosed And that you you deal with this issue With the same solidarity The same determination The same innovation The same equity That uh, had been exercised during the, the COVID crisis So mm. Um, you know health is important and i think that uh, you know, dealing with tuberculosis especially undiagnosed tuberculosis is a really important important thing for us to look at
0: uh, thank you exactly I, I, I really like that that last comment that you that you made about the the energy the passion the innovation that went into dealing with the covid crisis because it was a it was the one crisis that appeared to challenge the world without any thought as to this is a rich nation, this is a poor nation. Everyone was affected; the entire world was affected, and therefore, a huge focus was given on on uh, trying to get COVID under control. If only the world were to have the same passion, the same zeal, the same innovative approach to the other challenges, um, which which are there and real and apparent. And as you as you said, in terms of infectious diseases, TB. Prior to COVID, was that was the number one killer? We've got TB, we've got malaria. There are other diseases now. Thankfully, HIV, which again was another disease, which was indiscriminate in terms of the effect that it was having on developed and on, and underdeveloped nations. We managed to find an approach to the eradication of HIV within society, and and the numbers of individuals with being diagnosed with HIV now in nations such as the UK can be counted in the dozens on an annual basis rather than in the thousands as it was before. Um, and uh, HIV continues to be a challenge around the world but is being dealt with, all albeit with not the same equity because the price of of antiretroviral drugs to deal with HIV are still incredibly expensive in many, many um, nations around the world and require... Uh, require support and require equity but it, it it again is another example of a situation where um if if we don't treat individuals in other nations with the same sort of thought and justice then that will come back to bite us and and you were reflecting on the islamic perspective on this individual rights and responsibilities at the end of the day you know the 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 islamic um, perspective on it is that an individual is responsible for their own actions and will will answer on the day of judgment for their own actions no one will be able to say um, that i will burden the responsibility of a brother on on that day on the day of judgment and and the and the responsibilities are and from an islamic perspective um, we talk about the rights of God and the rights of one's fellow human beings, and in Arabic, that is, uh, um and hukuk And those two things, those two ideas, are side by side. And so, if you fulfill by fulfilling your responsibilities to your fellow man, you res, you are fulfilling your responsibilities to God. Um, and this idea, as you said, you know, the idea of collectivism, the idea that, that no man is an island alone unto himself, the idea that each of us as individuals has a responsibility to our brothers and sisters around the world, to everyone um, who is part of our both local and international um, collective human community is is, a, is central to Islam and surely is central to anyone that wants to make the world a better place and ensure justice around the world and ultimately ensure peace f- both for themselves and and you know for the people that they love and the legacy that they want to leave
1: so you've said lots of great things there and i want to pick up on one mm. actually and and one of them was you were talking about accountability mm. and saying that on the day of judgment everybody is responsible for their for their own Mm. actions and it just occurred to me that you know we have lots of people who are of faith that listen to this program and that's Mm. fairly something that they they would not object to and then there might be some people who are listening to this program actually who are not of faith and they say well you know I'm only responsible in to myself in this world and Mm. nothing's going to happen and I do good things and I'll be I'll benefit here and I'm not going to benefit after I'm gone because I'm gone and I was thinking about this and I think that look, if you're a scientist, then you will realise that energy is neither created, neither is it destroyed. It simply it doesn't disappear. It just goes from one form to another. Mm. So when we pass and you know uh, the life leaves us, the idea that that energy within our body just disappears. And doesn't go anywhere probably isn't consistent with science so i'm sure there are going to be some scientists that have an alternative view but there's a pretty good chance actually that the energy that we have you know in our soul and in our body actually goes somewhere else and we as muslims believe that that goes mm-hmm. uh, up to uh, uh allah to to god when which we are judged and there is a whole other life out there so if that is uh, a scientific um argument for us having a responsibility not just in this world but also in the next then it should also mean that we think about the consequences of our actions and our accountability so um that was the only point that i guess yep. i just i just wanted to wanted to make i'm not a scientist but i thought i'd give it a go
0: i i think a, re- a really important point Achille, and, and one you know just couple of minutes left now to this live segment of the program but a, a really really important one and i guess uh, hopefully we're making a case on on both grounds both on on a, a religious and and spiritual point but but also on the, but even if an individual says well i don't i don't believe in god i don't, I don't believe in an afterlife i don't believe in the idea of of uh, the day of judgment or an ultimate judgment for for me as an individual and some people will say that or some people will say well i'm spiritually and i believe in some sort of you know karmic comeback then then even on that basis or even if you don't you say, well, i don't believe in any of this i don't, don't believe there is a soul i don't believe in any of this then at, at the very least i think most individuals would still have empathy for their f- fellow um human being and on that basis would say that there There is something important in helping another individual um and whilst each of us has a responsibility to help ourselves, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of another person to really understand why perhaps they they have a challenge in being able to do the things that we we take for granted every single day and and how do we um how do we do that How do we put ourselves in their in their shoes and help them to be able to to Know, make the best of their of their life as well and recognize our our own privilege um Khalil, I'm go- i wanted to give you the opportunity to to give a response to that, but we are coming up to the end of the live segment of the program so actually i'll i 'll end there by saying thank you Khalil. I
1: talk too much anyway
0: no no Thanks. thank you o- o- always a pleasure to have you on the program and and um I look forward to um having a discussion again with you very, very soon. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. Uh, nice um, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon a chat and discussion. Some very heavy topics, um, I'm sure, but very, very important ones. Um, And we're going to round off today's uh, program by listening to our colleagues from Rational Religion, actually also on the topic of nuclear Armageddon and and how to avoid it uh, and and the reality of the political situations around the world, uh, and also a, a chance to listen to a chapter of the book, Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues. So thank you very much. You can listen again on SoundCloud. Please join the debate on Twitter as well. Um, And thank you for listening to uh, Weekend World on the Voice of Islam.
4: So I found some uh, crucial safety advice that I think we should all all check (laughs) out. Let's have a look.
5: (laughs) You couldn't get a better CGI.
3: So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit. Okay, so what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two, stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement, head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right? You've got this.
4: You've got this. When I originally saw that, I was very sceptical. But now, looking back, I've realised this is one of the best marketing gimmicks I've ever seen. I know. Nuclear war is coming. Subscribe. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I know. I thought, I better subscribe.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What what do you make of it? Um, Fundamentally well-intentioned. Okay. Um, because at the end of the day if you're telling people how to potentially survive a nuclear attack you know there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it yeah but um, uh, execution I think could have been improved <laughs> upon like um, smiling happy face a bit of rubble have you seen the bit of rubble at the beginning it's like no that's not what a nuclear bomb would do to a yeah. city like New York if very it was dropped clear, on very clear green it. screen yeah which um, is maybe realistic because there'll be no actual There'll you know, be no built. <laughs> no building <laughs> I mean, also get inside. Yes, I mean it is correct information. You should because, um, you, you know, radioactive dust. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you're within the blast zone, you'll be your whole building will be leveled upon you. Yeah. Um. So I suppose the the information is only valuable for people outside the blast zone. Mm-hmm. Um. And then obviously get inside, stay inside. Well, what if I need food or water? Which happens pretty quickly, by the way. Yeah, We drink about you know, two litres a day. Mm. So what, get inside, stay inside for a day, okay? <laughs> and then go find water. Oh, the water tap doesn't work. Oh, because I didn't prepare for it. Oh, okay. So actually, th- this emergency preparation would only last people 24 hours. And then follow the media. Oh, follow the authorities. Oh, which authorities would those be? Mm. Oh, yes, the authorities that got you into the situation of having a nuclear bomb dropped on your head in the first mm. place. Yes, mm. follow them. Okay, well, I mean, maybe, the, uh, you know, until the until the authorities tell you to go outside, that's true, you should follow what the authorities say. Yeah. But um, at the same time, you know, fallout from radioactive nuclear waste is, is...
4: I think they've got quite a few views from this. So they may be able to fund a bigger research t- team <laughs> to, to give us more tips as time goes on. Because I'm not sure Get Inside and Stay Inside it took them that long to conjure up um I think if there's going to be advice, it should be a bit more thorough, a bit more useful than that. Because these are things which probably you'd do anyway. You wouldn't be like, "Well, I'm just gonna have a picnic."
5: Well, no, I think people do uh, aren't aware of the fact that when nuclear fallout occurs, you need to, you you know you you might have radioactive dust upon you. Especially our generation. I mean, previous mm. generation, they'll know. You have
4: to tape up the windows and stuff, don't you? Yeah, you you can't let air
5: get in, and you basically have to live indoors mm. and away from the windows. So they're right in all counts, but you can't live indoors indefinitely if you don't have provisions. Yeah. She's beginning with it with...
3: um, Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit, okay? It's like, whoa,
5: okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'd like to know why. Well, that's a good point. How, I mean, I suppose a missile, (laughs) you know...
4: Yes, there's a sense of inevitability and in, in actually in our society that like wars are inevitable, like oh, well, you know, a massive conflict with Russia just has to happen, a conflict with China has to happen. It's like, well, it's not inevitable. Maybe if we act in a different way, we can avoid these calamities. Mm. And in fact, we did in, in many respects, the world did turn back and it's through dialogue and through genuinely seeing the other side. I mean, like you know, Ronald Reagan, say what you want, and it wasn't just him, but him and Gorbachev actually did properly meet, and they both came together, and they actually Mm. started making progress, and Russia was a country which, in reality, was a genuinely different world to ours in the West, in the sense of it actually lived under a different ideology, very destructive ideology, they had committed unbelievable atrocities to their own people, Um, they were anti-religion, yeah, and to others. Like there was there was such a greater difference between us and for instance modern day Russia and China. So uh, there was
5: Soviet Russia. There was a greater difference between us and Soviet Russia, yeah.
4: No, yeah, I mean I mean between us and Soviet Russia compared to us, us and versus today. modern day Russia yeah, 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 and yeah. China. Yeah. Um so it's surprising and perhaps um, you know, quite telling that today it's almost it almost seems like peace is less likely to happen because of the quality of the leadership yeah. and the the amount of hatred demonization um and misinformation that people That's take That's what on I board. find
5: find macabre about this uh, video because you know it's kind of starting with the topic of a nuclear bomber's hit. Yeah. Don't ask why or how. <laughs> I mean surely it would be more productive perhaps to make videos or to take actions which would decrease the likelihood of a nuclear bomb falling on your head, yeah, don't take the nuclear bomb falling on your head as a given, try and change the world, try and do things which might you know change the trajectory of the world, and instead, all of the media which she lords as the the sources of information and the means by which people will be able to stay mm. safe after a nuclear bomb um that media is cheerleading on a war, mm. you know. At full, you know, full guns blazes, a war in r- between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, and that media is holding the government to account, not by saying why are you sending arms to an active war zone? You know, mm. the Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. This was one of his points in the pathway to peace. He laid out a, a step-by-step plan, step-by-step policies which governments should enact if they want to avoid nuclear war. And one yeah. of them was do not send arms to places under active conflict. Mm. And the UK, the US, Europe just threw that out the window, okay? Mm-hmm. And decided to just send arms to an active active conflict. Mm. And instead of holding them to account, the media is cheerleading it, saying why aren't you sending more? Mm. We should send more. Yeah. We should we should have further war, we should have further death and destruction. Yeah, it's like a
4: race to the bottom. Yeah, that's very, very tragic. And, you know, I, I guess in one way, you can't really blame this channel per se, Emergency NYC. They're not going to do videos on politics. I know. But at the same we're time... We're not blaming them. I mean, it's, no, a, but it's a good it's, en- it's endeavour You know, there's no... It's not like this is one video in a wider milieu of the media talking about how we can turn back from, from war. Yeah. You know, there is there isn't that. There isn't. There's just, we need to go harder and further and faster. Yeah. Um. Which is, you know, unfortunately, we're heading towards a time when we may, God forbid, pay the price for that. Um, so it's uh, it's tragic that this is the, and that this is the kind of advice that you get. Yeah, you know, well, the the nuclear war is uh, something of an inevitability. Yeah, uh, I think it it does feel like we've lost, and obviously we, our generation never experienced that in the Cold War, but the, our parents' generation did. That kind of genuine, real fear of war, and and and, and, an, and an understanding of the gravity of what nuclear war is. Well, World War Two th- was still within living memory, you right. know, Fifty years total ago, war was yeah, total war, and there was that fear of nuclear of nuclear war. But I think I guess as time goes on, if something doesn't happen, it's a great it's a great fallacy which I see in so many so many um, arenas now. If you think something hasn't happened before, you think it won't happen again. Yeah. Um, it's like COVID. No one thought it was really you're going to have like a worldwide pandemic like we did with the Spanish flu, and then it happened. Hmm. Uh, it's like with economics. People are thinking, well, if we have a recession, it's going to be small, and then you rebound. Yeah, it's it's like, like well, two thousand
5: eight, wasn't it? I wasn't yeah, affected that, that was badly. I mean, oh, yeah. the house
4: prices went down. And I got a good mortgage actually. Out of the end of it, I've yeah. had that. Which was which was a. It was terrible for people who no, not like that. But exactly. also, it's there's also been the Great Depression before, and there's all that you know. Just because we haven't experienced total economic collapse doesn't mean it can't happen. I think of it like a a person like an organism. If you think of an organism, it has a life cycle and it has a lifespan and it's the cha- rate of change is incremental but it does add up. Mm. So a, a physiological insult it's a cold mm. you know at 30 well you barely feel it at yeah. 50 you probably barely feel it maybe a few more days. Uh at 60 you might feel it more but by the time you get to 70 80 something which you know might have you might have just shrugged off in the past that insult that same insult suddenly can become devastating to you and can actually lead you to even die yeah yeah I you, you get viral illness seen, then- I, I
5: saw that only recently in hospital i had a patient who you know fell off his motorbike mm. uh, splenic laceration and uh you know pulmonary contusions and all kinds of issues and he was just completely with it completely fine sitting in his bed yeah. you know and you know he was not affected by it in, yeah. this, in the sense of long term harm and he was up and mobilizing within 24 hours. Yeah. And then the person opposite him was an old man who'd just fallen out of bed and broken his hip and was completely immobile. Right. you know. So I, I said that to him. I said, you know, it's all very well. You're young and hip now, but at the end of the day, you're going to get old. And as you get older, you're going to have more of these insults and it's going to be too much for your body to bear.
4: So the same shock in a, in a, in a more senile uh, environment or se- to a more senile organism is going to can, can collapse it. So if so else, bring that so- back to this. What's well, that I mean- got to do with this? It's it's something which well I, I'm just talking about there the fallacy of it hasn't killed me before therefore it won't kill me again mm, the see. fallacy of um, because this hasn't been an issue yet it's not going to be an issue yeah. you know, cancer's only an issue when you're old and cancerous you know it's yeah. not gonna things things can change and things can happen and you can't base your projections of the future based on the past or even on, especially on the on the recent past yeah you need to actually what, consider what the dangers are and what we have now um, is a situation where we haven't had a total war in Europe for a very long time and where we've already come out of uh, a nuclear risk uh, time period, and therefore people assume, well, it'll never happen now because it never happened in the past. No, no, it could still happen. In fact,
5: it's more likely to happen now because people are not guarding against it. And I think the issue actually is more fundamental than uh, a civilizational one, or a a cultural issue, or a... It's much deeper, or an economic issue, or political issue, etc. It's a moral and a spiritual issue. Mm. And and people, because they've neglected their moral and spiritual aspects of themselves, mm. um, the natural consequence of s- lack of spirituality is a degeneration of morality. Because mm. you know morality is dependent ultimately upon accountability. Because we are, as human beings, require accountability to maintain um, a moral standards mm. over time. Um, and when you let that slip with a loss of a belief in God, you get a loss of moral standards. Consequence of a loss of moral standards is a loss in the quality. Of the people's moral character, in a democracy that manifests with the loss of the morality of the leaders that we accept right. and the leaders that we want, and then when you get evil leadership or leadership that is immoral, corruptible, um, and are self-serving, what do you get? <laughs> you then get them behaving in ways on the international stage as they behave in their personal life. Yeah, and then those individual nations behaving in those particular manner, in that manner. Mm. results in the formation of selfish blocks, results in, um, you know, conflict between nations. Mm. And that's yeah. exactly what's happened, basically. That's mm. exactly what's happened to a T. So how can we turn back from that? I think the only way we can do so is to recognize the person whom God has sent into the world, which is Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, to bring the world back towards a belief in God. Mm-hmm. And he did that not through um, conjecture, but by throwing su- by, by demonstrating signs that God still exists. Prophecies... Mm-hmm form um, of prayer. And he said that if you undertake this particular path in your spiritual life, then God Himself will show you His signs of His existence personally. Yeah. And when you become convinced of God's existence, then you become convinced of the existence of a being who will hold you to account. Mm. And that is the only moral restraint. Mm. You know, this notion that people, human beings, can live without a belief in God as an accountable force mm. is uh, immature, I think, and naive. Mm. Um, and consequently, when you lose that uh, moral restraint, um, and the societal systems of accountability break down as well due to civil unrest or policies or war or whatever. Mm. Um, the consequences, you have individuals who do not feel that they are accountable to anybody. Yeah. Right. And you often have that at the leadership level.
4: Yeah. I mean, at the calf of the African Muslim community, many years ago now, actually, I uh, released, uh, I think it was 11 Steps, which he, which he you know, from yeah. his talks um one of the key ones was you know belief in god and the others were more moral steps Mm. because you can technically do those actions it's just a question of do you have the motivation to without the motivation to most people don't as we see yeah um but even regardless of that they should the world leaders should do their best to actually turn back from war but as you say they are they're, they're too corrupted unfortunately they just they think they think it will never happen and their motivation is to kind of keep their poll numbers up, and to make sure that they don't uh, say anything against the grain in political circles.
5: Yeah, the sad thing is, is that if you look at the world as a whole, and you look at the the, the people in poorer parts of the world, mm. you know they they vastly outnumber the people in what Putin called recently the golden billion. You know, the idea <laughs> yeah. of the the top strata of humanity, who live you know in the West in Europe and the United States, Canada, etc., and you know, it's, it's, it's sad and it's a reality that the people of the West uh, as a whole, the nations, um, we accept the poverty in the world. Mm. We're actually okay with it. Yeah. Uh, as long as we're not poor. Yeah. Right. And as long as we don't get dragged into that, you know, problem, um, we don't mind the system we're in. And we mm. don't mind the leaders that really perpetuate the system we're in. Mm. Um, and that might be a part of apathy it might be a lack of compassion it might be just a lack of knowledge of how to, how to change the system Yeah. Um, and certainly individuals can't but that's somewhat belied by the fact that we have had leaders in recent memory we're not a political show so we're not going to go into it but we've had leaders in recent memory who made their policy and the, the fundamental core of their policy was to take care of the poor in their own countries, domestically, mm. right? Uh, and to make them the focus of, <clears throat> of, of what the government should be about. Yeah. You know, let alone the people who are poor in other countries. At least the people in your own country. At yeah. least the homeless guy on your street, Yeah, right? We've had people who ran for office in the UK, in the United States, and in other countries, who made that the absolute number one priority. Mm. And it was put to the British electorate. It was put to the electorate of the United States. And they preferred other important priorities other priorities that they thought were important. Mm. Whereas in the eyes of God, that is the most fundamental important priority.
4: And people are manipulated, but it's also they are there are you can only be manipulated if you have that uh weakness. That weakness. And also the people that are manipulating us in various ways, be they in intelligence communities, be they in uh the media, are also people. Yeah. They're also people who come up in this in this society and they think they're doing good and you know, yeah. so it reflects their values as well. Yeah. So at the end of the day, there is there is a degree of accountability that, that people share in a democratic society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the leaders that come out, and it's not a total; it's certainly partial, but it's yeah. there. It's yeah,
5: real. Absolutely, it's there. I mean, you know, now everybody's lambasting Boris Johnson, but hey,
4: yeah, we <laughs> voted
5: for him <laughs> as a nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's you know, you can't you, you the people whole are, people are also accountable as a nation yeah. for their leaders. Mm. Um, and I think, therefore, the the solution to all of this must be a spiritual and a moral. It's one It's a wider social thing. It's yeah. not
4: X leader needs to ex
5: leader this or ex leader needs to change or oh, we, we need, need to, change to all change. Let's change the red party to the blue party or the blue party to the red party. Yeah. No, yes, yeah. not going to do do anything. You're you're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, my friend. Mm. You know, um, but, and the Titanic that's shimping, it's sinking. Is the is the moral and spiritual quality of the people.
4: We well, you know what they said before the Titanic uh, set off. They said not even God can sink this ship. <laughs> <laughs> Sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> May they rest in peace. <laughs> well,
5: you know, it reminds me of uh, Muhammad Zafrul Khan, what you just said, it reminds me of Hazrat Muhammad Zafrul Khan, the companion of the Promised society, He was also the President of the General Assembly of the UN 17th session and uh, President of the International Court of Justice, the only individual in world history to hold both positions. Mm. Um and you know when he that was conveyed to him that that was what was being said at the launching of the Titanic. Yeah, his response was famously, um, "There is no way the ship cannot sink now." Because really, because I didn't he, know that. Didn't you know that? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said there is no way that this ship will come oh. back in one piece because it's a it's a challenge to God. Yeah, you can't challenge God.
4: Yeah, you know that's awful. That's <laughs> just this. That's it's just pascal's wager isn't it you know <laughs> no, it's, just, no, no it's not pascal's wage. No, it's like the opposite it's like you should at least take pascal's wager or at least not you know pascal's wager yeah, yeah. believe just in case god exists you know yeah you know you don't want to get up there and then you figure you were wrong so just 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 say you believe in god yeah and nominally do it at yeah. least i mean this is going the opposite of it yeah yeah you know? that just
5: reminded me of that but i think to some extent um that attitude that the titanic set off with and it's a good point to finish on i guess that attitude that the titanic set off with is as a person who's been born in the west, raised in the west, educated in the west, works in the west, everything in the west. Mm. Okay? That attitude infuses and suffuses every aspect of our culture. Mm. Every single aspect of our civilization and culture is that we are at the top of the of world history, we are the most advanced, we are the most culturally superior we are the most technologically brilliant there is no way our civilization can collapse and we are the empire which will never fall mm. and uh, we should have taken a lesson from the fall of communism mm. and you know our 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 civilization of the west is in full it's in internal decline now yeah right and we're about to witness potentially a horrifying end through a catastrophic nuclear fallout and destruction yeah. and the, the previous video we made on gog and magog You know, that's what it says in the prophecies. That's what the Bible says in its prophecy, Mm. right? It says that Gog would be destroyed by Gog, God. We explained why that refers to communism. And then it says upon Magog and those who dwell carelessly in the isles, Mm. God shall send a fire upon them. Yeah. You know, and we went through that whole prophecy in detail. It's a very detailed prophecy, Mm. um, which talks about that and shows that. But
4: at least now we know to to go inside. Oh, and and stay inside. Oh, and stay inside, Yeah, yeah. And to follow emergency NYC.
5: Yeah. Yeah, because YouTube channels will be running and the servers will be there and, you know, people will still be commenting and liking yeah. things. They won't be thinking to themselves, hmm, I don't Lol, know. this is bad. Hashtag World War Three. Yeah, yeah. They won't be thinking, oh, well, actually, I've got no water. There's no water in my tap. Mm. There's no food. The windows are all blown out. Oh, there's a guy coming through the window with a shotgun. Oh, oh he just shot my family. You know, none of that's going to happen. We're going to be texting and tweeting about things.
4: Yeah. Very sad. Subscribe <laughs> to Rational Religion. <laughs> For more World War Three updates. <laughs> hey, thanks for watching the video. My name is Razik, the editor of this channel. If you like this content, leave a like, comment, as we like to see the debates that get sparked, and make sure you're subscribed. And if you want to see more content like this, please check out these videos that are playing next to me right now. Peace be upon you. <laughs>
0: This is the second part in a serialisation of the book Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad. All Prophets are equal. The question arises that if there are so many Prophets of God sent to all peoples of the world, in different parts of the world, and in different ages, Do they have the same divine authority? According to the Holy Qur'an, all prophets belong to God, and as such, insofar as their divine authority is concerned, they exercise such authority with equal force and strength. No one has a right to discriminate between one prophet and another. As far as the authenticity of their message is concerned, all prophets must be equal. This attitude of Islam towards other religions and their founders, as well as minor prophets, can work as a very important uniting and cementing factor between various religions. The principle that the authenticity of each prophet's revelation enjoys the same status can be used as a very powerful unifying force, bringing various religions together. This transforms the attitude of hostility towards the revelation of prophets of other religions to that of respect and reverence. This again is the clear and logical position taken by the Holy Qur'an. The Holy Qur'an states, This messenger, the holy founder, peace be upon him, of Islam, believes in that which was revealed to him from his Lord, and so do the believers. All of them believe in Allah, and in his angels, and in his books, and in his messengers, saying, We make no distinction between any of his messengers. And they say, We have heard, and we are obedient. This subject is repeated in other verses of the Holy Quran. For instance, Surely those who disbelieve in Allah and his messengers and seek to make a distinction between Allah and his messengers, and say, we believe in some and disbelieve in others, and seek to take a way in between. These really are the disbelievers, and we have prepared for the disbelievers a humiliating punishment. And those who believe in Allah and in all of his messengers, and make no distinction between any of them, to such He will soon give their rewards, and Allah is most forgiving, merciful. Can rank be different if authenticity is equal? If all prophets are equal in authenticity, must they also be equal in rank? The answer to this question is that in many respects, prophets can vary in their personal qualities and the way they discharge their responsibilities. As far as their nearness to God and the relative status they hold in the sight of God is concerned, messengers and prophets can differ from each other. A study of the history of prophets from the accounts of the Holy Bible, the Holy Qur'an and other scriptures also affirms this conclusion. The Holy Qur'an admits that there are differences of status in a manner that should not disturb the peace of man. The same Holy Quran that declares that there is no difference as far as the authenticity of messages from God are concerned between one prophet of God and another, declares These messengers have we exalted, some of them above others. Among them are those to whom Allah spoke frequently, and some of them he exalted by degrees of rank. Having accepted this proposition one may wonder as to who should be considered as the highest in rank among the prophets. This is a sensitive issue, yet one cannot close one's eyes to the importance of this question. Adherents of almost all religions claim that the founder of their religion stands supreme, and no one else can be a match to him in excellence, dignity, piety, honour, and in short, all the qualities that go into the making of a prophet. Then, does Islam also claim that Muhammad, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, of Islam, is the most exalted of all prophets? Yes, Islam does make an unambiguous claim about the par excellence and supremacy of the qualities of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, over all the rest of the prophets of the world. Yet there is a very clear difference between Islam and other religions in their attitude to this claim. First of all, it should be kept in mind that no religion other than Islam recognizes the universality of prophethood. When the Jews claim if they do that Moses was the greatest prophet, they are not comparing Moses with Buddha, Krishna, Jesus or Muhammad peace be upon him, because they deny the claims of all other great founders of the religions mentioned above to be genuine and worthy of acceptance. So in the Jewish list of prophets, no prophets are included, other than those specifically mentioned in the Old Testament. Even the possibility of there being prophets elsewhere is ruled out. In the light of this attitude, their claim regarding the supremacy of any Judaic prophet does not belong to the same category as that of Islam, as according to Judaism, prophets, outside of the Holy Bible, simply do not exist. Exactly the same, is the nature of similar claims of Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, etc. There is yet another difference to be kept in mind. When we talk of their prophets, we are aware that they do not always refer to their holy religious figures as prophets. The concept of prophets and messengers as understood in Judaism, Christianity and Islam is not exactly shared by most other religions. Instead, they treat the founders of their religion and holy men as holy personages, or reincarnations of God, or God himself, or something approaching that. Perhaps in this respect, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, also should be understood as an exception from the vantage point of Christianity. But according to Islam, all these so-called gods, or reincarnations of God, or the so-called sons or children of God, are merely prophets and messengers who were deified by their followers at a much later point in fact to be more specific according to islam the deification of holy personages in various religions is a very gradual process and not that of the general contemporary to the prophet peace be upon him but of that we shall speak later When Islam, however, claims that its holy founder is supreme among the Prophets, it takes into account the holy personages of all the religions of the world, in the sense understood by the Judeo-Islamic concept of Prophets. It may bear repeating that Islam considers the founders of all revealed religions to be merely human beings, who were raised by God to the status of prophethood. There is no exception in this universal phenomenon. For instance, the Holy Quran declares, How will it fare with them, when we shall bring a witness from every people, and shall bring thee as a witness against these?